Around 3.18 in the morning, I woke up to what I thought was a scream, and then I heard two very loud thuds about 60 seconds apart. And I heard these footsteps, and I started counting. There was 12 steps that went down the hallway. They stopped. I was laying under the covers, and I could see the feet in the doorway out of my peripheral vision. And something told me, don't look up. The footsteps went away. But when I woke up a few hours later in the morning, I run into my mother's bedroom and I start looking for her and rummaging through the sheets. I went downstairs and my father was sitting on the couch and he had just taken a shower. And I said, where is my mother? And he didn't say anything. And right then I knew, you killed my mom. On December 31st, 1989, an 11-year-old boy awakens to a nightmarish world to which his mother no longer exists. As the days progress, he must accept that not only is she murdered by his own father, but that avenging her death will mean no less than putting his own life on the line. This is the extraordinary story of Collier Landry. Yeah, you you know Vice? Like, they're a huge company that does, like, docu-series and stuff. Oh, that's cool. So they've been uh, tracking you all week? Yeah, they've been here filming. I've been filming stuff, and so it's been... Well, appreciate you taking the time for me. No, of course. So this is like an anniversary of the day they raided your house, right? It's January 24th. That is correct. You know, I did this interview with Gunner, and he's super cool. And I was filming something, and I said, I need to be done at X amount of time. And they said, no problem. And the director, he was here, and he was just standing over me while I'm trying to talk to you guys. And I'm like, dude, I told you, like, just go. And then he left, and then he threw a temper tantrum. He was downstairs, like, throwing a temper tantrum and, like, stomping. Whatever, I'll roll with the punches. And I just, I didn't realize that we were doing it live, live, too. So I was just kind of like, oh, man, okay. And I just. I remember that. And Gunner's out of Detroit, yeah. Yeah. He'll do a show with absolutely zero idea what he's going to say. Just get on and boom. And he knows Tyler Allen from Minds of Madness podcast. And I love Tyler. He's like one of my favorite people. So he's good people. And uh, I just wanted to do a good job with him. Can you hear that uh, airplane? No. That's fantastic. Often when I do a street beat segment on the Gunner Detroit radio program, I sign off around 8.30 p.m. The show runs another half hour, but it's Friday night and there's usually other commitments to attend to. But you're gonna to wanna to hang around for tonight's second guest, Gunner advised me. This guy's someone you're gonna want for your podcast. And although the interview was hurried, the delay a bit disorienting, and Collier obviously had a lot going on, what shone through was a man with an incredible story, with a warrior spirit, and sadly, with a message far too many survivors need to hear. What happened to you, these horrific events, the Urban Dictionary has defined a term to describe the process of making a person extraordinary. That isn't what defines you. A traumatic trial by fire that will define not only their future, but the essence of who and what they are to become. What defines you is what you do with them. That's what real resilience is. I'm William Cross, and this is Extraordination. My name is Collier Landry. I was born in February 1978. My earliest childhood memory has to be of the ocean and just the serenity that surrounded the ocean because I grew up the first part of my life, the first like six months in Pensacola, Florida. And then we moved to Dalger, Virginia, which is right close to the Chesapeake Bay. And I just remember spending a lot of time in the water as a child, which I really liked. My mother loved the water, too. She loved the ocean. I grew up the majority of my life feeling like I had a normal childhood. 
I had two parents, I lived in a house, and I had friends, I went to school, I played games in the yard, hide and go seek, I went trick-or-treating, and I just, I felt like a normal kid. And I had this wonderful, supportive mother who I was her constant companion. If I wasn't in daycare, I wasn't with friends, I was with my mother. And I grew up sort of attached to the hip with her. <laughs> now I say that, but when I was a kid, my mother would take me shopping and I would have to wear a harness and she would have a, a leash for me <laughs> with the harness because I was also a little bit of a handful. And I remember I would go to the mall with my mom, you know, back in the day of the dress shop or whatever the stores, they had the little turnstile where they had the dresses. And I remember my mom would be shopping and I would hide in there. It'd be like a little teepee. And I would just sit in there. I'd play with like probably Legos or something silly. And I would just be like hiding from her. <laughs> and I can remember sometimes her yelling throughout the store, like, call your, call your, and, and, and me just like hiding. <laughs> and so I'm sure I gave her a heart attack on many an occasion, hence the harness. I lived in Virginia for almost the first five years of my life. So we lived on a naval base and my father was a doctor in the Navy and I would watch airplanes land in the backyard and stuff like that. And I remember my father being around in my life and being somewhat present for sure. I remember my dad came home one time with these little plastic jets that had little propellers on them in the back and you hung them in the ceiling and it was on a tether and it's like went around in circles. And so I remember my dad bringing those and we, we put them in my bedroom. And I used to have little decals on the ceiling of the stars, you know, so it would glow at night. And so those are some of the memories I have of my father. And then I remember I was watching a cartoon on the television and it was Looney Tunes or something. It was a bullfighter. And I saw that and he had the Toro Toro, you know. And I remember like pretending I was a bull <laughs> and I, I backed up and do the bull thing and then I ran and I ran right into our dining room table which was very heavy there used to be a furniture company called Land's End they made very heavy solid wood furniture and I split my head open and obviously tears and this and that and blood going everywhere and I remember my father and my mother like bringing me in the kitchen my mom was putting like a towel on it and there's blood everywhere and I remember very specifically my mother giving me provolone cheese to eat to like try to calm me down because I needed food. And then my dad rushed me to the little medical clinic where he worked at and he stitched up my head. He did it himself. So I have a really faint scar on my forehead from that exercise, if you will. That's like one of the first memories I remember of my father. And then I think those memories started to slowly change. As I was getting older, I started getting a vibe, if you will. Yeah. I just thought I had a normal childhood. I mean, like, what is normal, right? Your reality is your own, so if you think it's one way, it's going to be that way. But it wasn't until we moved away from Virginia and we moved to a small town in Ohio called Mansfield when I sort of began to realize that maybe my life wasn't quite what I thought it was. Now, I would spend time with my father, so when we moved to Mansfield, he would make rounds as a doctor at the local hospital that he worked at, and he would see patients, and I would go around with him on his rounds. And I would tap dance, and I would sing to the patients and stuff. It would be very entertaining, because I was just a very entertaining kid. And 
I think that was sort of where I found my flair for entertainment, but also that was when I started to notice things. And I noticed that if I would come home with my dad, then I would be with my mother and my dad would be gone. So he wasn't around a lot. So besides those very small pockets of interaction with him, there was limited interaction outside of that. Now, I remember when we were in Virginia, when my dad got the VHS of Star Wars, when we moved to Mansfield, I remember going to see The Empire Strikes Back because I was like 1983 in the theater. So I have memories of those sort of moments as a family, but those moments were sort of fleeting, especially when we moved to Mansfield. I remember a lot of dinners as I was growing up where my father wasn't around because he was, quote, working late or he had to be at the office or what have you. And, you know, I would later come to find out there was different reasons why he wasn't around. But I still felt like I had a complete family. And even though when we moved to Mansfield, I had friends whose fathers were doctors or professionals and they were kids who were in single parent households. And so their mother was divorced from their father, so they would go see them on the weekends. They spent all the time with the mom during the week, going to school, this, that, the other, right? So I became aware that my relationship with my parents was unique in a way because I actually had a whole family unit and I only had a few friends that had that dynamic. I mean, maybe more than a few, but I guess what I realized was is that some families were separated. Like I didn't know anybody that was divorced. And then when we moved to Mansfield, I did. And so I got to have that experience and I was grateful. But, you know, again, my father was less and less around at key parts. You know, it was like in the morning and at night, like late at night, a lot of times missing dinner, sometimes at school functions, sometimes not. It it just depended. And my father and I would go skiing. That was like our one bonding thing. So when I got old enough, like I would say eight, nine years old, I started skiing And my father and I would go on ski trips and my mother came sometimes, but mostly it was him. And I do remember a lot of times waking up in the hotel room and he wasn't in there in the middle of the night, more often than I, than I remember him being there. So I started to maybe think that things weren't quite what they seemed to be. One time there, there was like a lounge at the ski lodge and I was in there and it was a bar obviously and I saw my father talking to a woman who was obviously not my mother and I just kind of took note of it but I didn't really say anything and then that was night he took me back to the hotel then he like left, right? The hotel room and then was gone. But I never really picked up on what was really going on. Not for a while. It was always at that time when I was younger, it was always that my father was working He was providing for the family. He would also remind me that he was providing for the family. He was not shy about reminding us of that. And there was always a reason why he wasn't around. He was at the hospital. He was on call. He was always on call. That's probably typical for a doctor anyways, but always having some emergency that he had to go deal with. He had to call his answering service. He had to go take care of something. His tenure in our household was more and more infrequent, if that makes sense. I really started noticing a change right around the time that my grandmother, who was my mother's mother, fell ill and had passed away. And I noticed a shift because we would have family come for, like my mother's side of the family, we would always try to get together with them whenever we could. They lived in Baltimore, Maryland, and they would always like come for holidays. And I remember that that year, that was 1988, and my mother had moved her father into our house after his wife passed. 
Um, he didn't stay in Baltimore. He didn't want to stay there. He wanted to stay with us. And I was extremely close to my mother's father. I noticed that around that holiday, like my aunt and uncle from Maryland, my mother's sister didn't come to Christmas or spend the holidays with us. And it seemed like even at the funeral of my grandmother, there was some tension around the family. But again, I didn't know what any of that was. It was just me sort of picking up on it. And I do remember my mother saying to me, I had to be strong for my grandfather, you know, not cry at the funeral, be a brave little boy, this, that, and the other, right? And so I kept that in mind. So 1988, my grandfather passes away, my mother's father. And I remember we were at a hospital down in Columbus called Grant Medical Center. And my father had come down and he was, you know, interacting with the doctors and things like that. Later on that year, in May of 1988, my grandfather, his father, also passed away. And we were also very close. My mother was very close with my father's mother. They were almost like sisters because she wasn't particularly close with her own sister, my mother, my Aunt Carol. And my grandmother wasn't particularly close with her own daughter, who was more of a tomboy. My mother was very beautiful and very put together and very, very ladylike. So there was a real bond and friendship between them. And she was also very close with my father's brother, my uncle Charles, who was also my godfather. And what ended up becoming apparent to me is that time there was no real distraction between the families anymore. So my mother's sister wasn't coming around anymore. Her parents are dead, so we're not going to Baltimore to see them. And then there is this sort of weird discord between my mother and her sister, which I'm, I'm like, what's going on? And then it seems that my father's behavior seems to be more and more prevalent. I would ultimately find out that when those relationships ended, you know, by death, that my father was left to his own devices. He was always very violent with me. He was very violent with my mother. He had a really bad temper. So I grew up, even before this, I grew up tiptoeing around in my house a lot. Don't say anything that'll upset daddy. My father went to Penn and my mother went to Penn. And I remember one time when the ski instructor gave me a Penn State hat because he was a Penn State fan. And I started saying Penn State, Penn State. My father told me to shut up. We don't say Penn State. And then as a kid, you know, you're jeering like, oh, Penn State, is it? Like, I don't know what it means, right? And he got so angry and he, he threatened my life. He threatened to beat the living piss out of me in front of my mother. He made her beg on the ground, kneel and beg for mercy for my life. And then he left the, the house and slammed the door and shattered all the windows. And it was just, he, he was apoplectic. My father could turn on rage in a blink of an eye. It was just all very weird to me. But I grew up really tiptoeing and sort of kind of just being there for my mother. And my father was around less and less. I became really severely asthmatic around 1988. I started developing asthma. I had a lot of trouble breathing. Obviously, winters are pretty brutal in Ohio when you're dealing with all of that. I would have frequent asthma attacks and need treatment in the hospital and things like that. Breathing treatments at home, stuff like that, steroids, injections, prednisone, you name it. And I started gaining a lot of weight and my father would make fun of me for my weight. He would pick on me. I would get picked on at school about it. I remember my mother taking me to Weight Watchers with her and some other kids. But it, I was chubby because I was taking steroids, you know? So that like I could exercise and play at recess a lot with the other kids or run around and play soccer in the soccer field and things like that because I had asthma. And my father was very abusive over that and my trouble breathing. So towards the end of 1988, after all this loss in our family, my mother apparently wanted another child. She wanted a girl. And my mother and father decided to adopt a baby from Taiwan. 
my father, I guess, sort of acquiesced to my mother's demands, unbeknownst to me, but agreed to adopt this girl. And my mother and I were supposed to go to Taiwan. A few days before we were supposed to travel there, I got really sick with bronchitis. And my father and mother decided that I wasn't going to go to Taiwan. So I was left for two weeks in February 1989 with my father without the protection of my mother for the first time. And that was when I really saw who my father was. And he was a monster to me. And I remember one instance, I had unplugged a speaker wire from the computer because I was playing video games and my father was watching, I think, Commando on television. I unplugged them so the noise wouldn't bother him. And he came in and he asked why there was no sound coming from the computer. And it's because I had unplugged the wire. And I was like, uh, I unplugged the wire. I was trying to be kind. And, you know, so you didn't get disturbed. And he lost it. And he started calling me a stupid little fat boy, f***ing idiot, a little, my mother's turning me into a little faggot. He starts pulling off the books and games for the computer off the computer desktop and starts throwing them at me and hitting the wall. He put a dent in the door and he starts chasing me around the house, throwing things at me, screaming at me. I'm 11 years old, maybe not even 11 years old. He's making me take out the trash. He would stop me and ask me what I was and I'd have to respond, I'm a stupid little fat boy or else he'd beat me. So I had to acknowledge him that way for the duration of the time, right? And it started earlier because he was watching like Commando and like, I didn't want to watch movies like that. I didn't like violence and I would cover my eyes and he would tell me I was a pussy, a little faggot, or this, that, and the other, whatever expletive you can put on it. He was just very abusive, but always with that abuse, my mother was there. So it would stop at a certain point. Well, now without my mother, I had no wall for that abuse for him to do this to me. So for two weeks, he treated me like this. And then he would apologize. And then he was, it's okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get mad. You know, back and forth, the typical narcissist, just gaslighting. You know, you did this, it's your fault. Like, it just terrible shit. That, that was like the height of like my really awful experience with my father because I had never been, like I said, left alone with him before. And now I understand why. But around Memorial Day 1989, my father takes me to a Memorial Day party. He's going to go visit patients and it's out in the country, a place that I don't really ever go. My parents were city folk. We didn't really go out to the country, you know. And he's at this house and it had a lot of fun. They were barbecuing, everybody was drinking beer. They were playing volleyball, softball, whatever. It was like good country folk stuff. They were riding quads. There was like a lake. I don't know if they were jet skiing, but it just looked like a really fun place. And so I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. But he introduced me to this young woman. Her name was Sherry Campbell. And I was walking with her daughter, who was a few years younger than me. And I look back, and my dad has his arm around her. I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. And we walked around the lake, and then my dad and I left. And I noticed that he had given her a kiss on the cheek. And then I said, who is that woman? Why did you have your arm around her? And he said, well, she's terminally ill, and I was consulting her. She has really severe medical problems. I was like, oh, that's so sad. You know, that's like a horrible thing, right? So we go home, and I, I don't really ever think anything of it. You know, I'm just like, oh, that's really bad. My dad was doing a good thing. He's a doctor, this, that, the other, right? So I saw Sherry Campbell again, and it was on Father's Day, 1989. So a few weeks later, my father had taken me to his office to go grab some paperwork. Then he was going to go to the suntan parlor place or whatever and get a suntan. But you know, it was tanning as the 80s and everybody's into it, right? So we go to the tanning salon, and there's a woman there. There's Sherry Campbell. Oh, wow, what a surprise. And she had in the trunk of her car two remote control cars. And she gave me a remote control. I mean, I'm a kid. I was like, here, 
Happy Father's Day to you guys. Here's matching remote control cars and stuff. I thought that was very cool. I'm a little kid, right? I'm like, oh, this is fun. And I look on her hand and I see a ring that is identical to a ring my mother had that she would occasionally wear. It was very unique because it was a diamond slide ring. So the, the diamond would slide back and forth in the ring. I said to her, I said, oh, that's weird. My mommy has a ring just like that. And then she just kind of giggles and looks at my father. Now, at this point, I'm thinking to myself, something's up, man. And I'm sitting in the car. We're getting ready to leave. And I look through the windshield and I see him making out with her. And I'm like, oh, I've never seen this before. I've seen this in movies. I've never seen this before. My father gets in the car. And he basically asked me, he says, don't tell your mother about this. I need you to do me a favor, buddy. I need you to lie to your mother. Like when he was abusing me and when she was gone, like he didn't want me to tell her that. And I was not to tell her that. And he was sorry and yada, yada. This was the first time that I had experienced something where he was really like, you know, I need you not to tell her anything. He was probably trying to test me or whatever, but he was trying to hide the fact that he had a girlfriend. I said, okay. So I lied to my mother when we got back because he told me, tell her that we went to the office. I had the radio control cars for you. I gave them to you for getting good grades this year. I said, okay. Because I'm afraid of my father. I've grown up afraid of my father at this point. You know, we go out to dinner that night. We go to a rib place. We have ribs, the whole thing, whatever. I get really sick that night. And I have like, I have a tummy ache and, you know, I'm vomiting. And I'm sick to my stomach for the fact that I lied to my mother. Because I had never done that before. You know, specifically, let's lie to my mother. And I didn't really know, you know, you don't really know what lying is when you're a kid, really. At least at that age, at least I didn't. But I knew it was wrong. That's what I did know. And it seemed like it was really serious. So the next day I was playing with the radio control car. My, my father was not there. And I just was so overwhelmed with guilt. I came inside and my mother was sitting on the porch. And I said, mommy, I have something to tell you. I said, I think daddy's having an affair. Because I knew that my friends whose parents were divorced, like their fathers had affairs on their mothers. I kind of knew what that was. And I told her the whole thing and about Sherry and the ring and all that stuff. You know, she thanked me for telling her she wasn't happy that I lied to her, but she said she understood why. Because my father asked me to do that. And that wasn't good that he put me in that position. And then when she went inside, she made a phone call. She was screaming <laughs> on the phone. And uh, that's when things started to happen. So over the next several months, my mother essentially had, unbeknownst to me, my parents had this relationship that, like I said, I, I had no idea existed, which was my father could do whatever the f he wanted. And as long as he didn't involve me, it was fine. Once he crossed that line in the sand that my mother drew, that was it. She decided to file for divorce. And that's when things just got really nasty. And so for the next several months, this divorce starts. My father's definitely not around now. He's hanging out. And every time I would spend time with him, it was really weird and awkward and we would randomly run into his girlfriend and her kids. And it was just weird, man, really uncomfortable. And he was just really nasty towards me. And how's that bitch whore your mother doing? My mom would even say things like, how's that asshole your father doing? It was, it was bad. And I realized that this isn't healthy. This isn't normal. I realized that I was like that kid that my friends had gone through the same thing. The parents getting a divorce, the dad cheating on the mom, the anger, the fights, and I was now a part of all of this. And even though I'd seen my parents fight before and I saw my father be very violent and angry and nasty with both of us and beat me and, and things like that, I still felt like I still had a family. Well, now I just realized that I'm not gonna have a family anymore. And I'm just like these other kids. 
And of course, my father's leaving me little notes on my pillow. I still love you. All these manipulation things. It was November 1989. My mother, she sort of stopped cooking at home a lot. And so we would go to this place called Bob Evans. I mean, you're from the Midwest, you know. And I would get like oatmeal for dinner. <laughs> I loved oatmeal for some reason. Oatmeal and iced tea. And she would get eggs because they served breakfast all day. This is right around Thanksgiving. I remember we're driving to Bob Evans and she says something to me. She says, Collier, I want you to know that I would never leave you. And that if anything ever happens to me, your father probably had me killed. I was shocked. I, I said, how do you know that, Mommy? And she says, well, your father has mafia connections. He's connected back in Philadelphia. I just don't trust him as far as I can throw him. Just know that I would never leave you. And she was really down because this time the divorce had been carrying on for a few months. And my father was saying things to me like, you know, you're going to go to public school like all the poor kids. I'm going to make sure your mother works at McDonald's. You're not going to get any money for college. You're going to have the worst life. I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to give the best life to my girlfriend and her kids. I just bought her a house, like all this stuff. It was just really nasty. You're going to have to move out of your house. I'm going to sell your house. You won't have anything left. You know, very vitriolic and angry towards me. And my mother, of course. But this is months later. The divorce is ongoing. It was December 30th, 1989. My grandmother was supposed to come stay with us for Christmas that year. That was his mother, who my mother was very close with. Instead, she came at New Year's and came for dinner. We had dinner. I went to bed, kissed my mother goodnight, kissed my grandmother goodnight. Goodnight, mommy. I love you. Gave her a hug. And that's the last time I saw my mother. At around 3.18 in the morning, I woke up to what I thought was a scream. And then I heard two very loud thuds about 60 seconds apart. And I heard my father muttering. This was happening in my mother's bedroom, down the hallway from me. Now, I slept with my door open my whole life. And I heard these footsteps, and I started counting. There was 12 steps that went down the hallway. And I stopped. I was laying under the covers and I could see the feet in the doorway out of my peripheral vision. And something told me, don't look up. I pretended to be asleep. I was holding my breath to like not make a sound. The footsteps went away. I somehow managed to get back to sleep. But when I woke up a few hours later in the morning, the sun's up, I run into my mother's bedroom and I start looking for her and rummaging through the sheets, looking for bloodstains. She's nowhere to be found. And the sheets were all like out of whack on the bed. I used to get up in the morning and make my bed first thing. Like that was the rule. And my mother did the same thing. I went downstairs and my father was sitting on the couch and he had just taken a shower and he had a towel wrapped around his waist. And I said, where is my mother? And he didn't say anything. And I said, where is my mother? And he said, well, mommy took a little vacation, Collier. And right then I knew, game on, mother You killed my mom. He starts telling me this story on how my mom came down and got angry into a fight. She threw her purse at him, and that's the sound I heard hitting the wall. She threw credit cards at him. She left out the back door, walked down the driveway, in the dead of winter, mind you, in the dead of winter, and walked down the driveway and got into a car, and then that car left. And she had left us and left my adopted sister. Taiwan and him and he starts going into this whole thing we're not going to call the police not going to call FBI yada yada my father leaves and my grandmother is there my grandmother's like you know don't call the police don't do this and I'm just like that shit 
My mother had just gotten a cordless phone, so when my grandma wasn't looking, I grabbed the cordless phone and I hid it under my shirt and I went upstairs and went into the bathroom. But before I did that, I stopped in my room and I had taken all my mother's friends' phone numbers and written them down on a piece of paper and hid it inside this Santa Claus Garfield that I had. I took those numbers out and I started calling everyone on the list and I told them what happened. And I said, you need to call the police. Two police officers showed up a few hours later, just asking questions. My grandmother was enraged by this because she started yelling at me that I called the police. My father was not at the house, obviously he had left. They walked around the house a little bit. I tried to like pull them away from my grandmother so I could tell them what happened. I pulled one of them away and I said, look, I said, my mother would never leave me. I don't trust my father as far as I can throw him, which is what my mother always used to say about him. Nothing happened. They left and they're like, okay. My father came home that night. We had sort of a makeshift weird dinner my grandmother cooked. You know, he's hypothesizing about where she could have gone and it's just weird. But I'm like, I know what you did, man. The next day, I call my mother's friends again and I'm like, what's going on? They're like, okay, we filed a missing persons report. I'm like, it's a missing persons report. She's dead or she's like trapped somewhere. So this detective shows up at the house and his name is Lieutenant David Messmore. He's at the door and my grandmother is like literally apoplectic with him. She's just exploding, yelling at him. My son's a doctor. He said, well, I just want to come in and talk to you guys. I'm like, come on in. So he comes in the house, he charms his way in. And then she's like, I'm going to call my son right now. So she goes to call on the phone. So she left me there with the detective. And that I knew was my only chance. I said, give me your business card. I'm going to get in touch with you. I said, my mother would never leave me. Something has happened to her. She's not missing. She didn't just take off. He gave me his business card. My father came home that night. That night we weirdly had a New Year's sort of dinner with his girlfriend who made this really terrible pork roast. And I was just, ugh, I was disgusted. Like here she is, like we're playing house and my mom is missing. It's very weird. The next day I go to school, they arrange for me to like be taken to school because my father can't be bothered with that. I go to school, I go in the principal's office, I give the principal the detective's card and I said, you need to call this guy. You need to get him down here, I need to talk to him. So Dave Massmore came down to my school and I laid out for hours everything. I laid out the girlfriend, what I heard the whole night, my father's proclivity for violence, the history of all that, my family, their relationship, the divorce, you know, meeting Sherry Campbell the year before, all these things, everything I knew, everything I knew, I gave him everything. My sort of hypothesis, and I'm 11 years old this time, I'm almost 12 years old. And I said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pull the bookshelves out of the wall upstairs because we have these crawl spaces. And I'm going to look for my mother's body. And I'm going to start gathering evidence and I'm going to look to see if I can find her purse because she would never leave the house without this one purse that she kept all her things in. Over the course of the next 25 days, myself and David Messmore put together ultimately what happened. I kept reporting to Dave Messmore every time I go to school because that was my safe place. Like going to school was my safe place to be able to talk about this. I wasn't around my father. I wasn't around my grandmother. There was no issues. And I would say to the police, like, this is what I'm finding. But my father was coming home with marks on his hand. He asked me to rub Ben Gay on his shoulders because he was sore from, quote, moving boxes at his new office in Erie. All these things, none of it was adding up and my father's behavior went from someone who had this massive proclivity for violence and loved violent movies and I was playing a video games. I got a Nintendo that year for Christmas from Santa Claus and I was playing the Nintendo like a fighting game and he got upset because I was playing a fighting game and he's like, oh, I don't condone violence. I'm like, who is this guy? This is like, what? All of his behavior, I'm reporting all this to the police. 
And it wasn't until mid-January 1990, my father takes me to his office to go pick up some billing statement things that he had to take back. And on the way back, we stop at this gas station. And my father goes in to pay for the gas and I'm watching him in the gas station. He used to eat like these mallow cup things. He went in there to get those and some other things. And I'm watching him and I start rummaging through his truck while I'm looking through the windshield. And I open up a center console and I find two photographs together. One is of a house I've never seen. The second photograph is of his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, with her two children sitting in front of a fireplace that's wrapped in plastic. And I put two and two together and I said, this is a house and she's here. This is a new house. Next day I go to school, call the police, you know, say, you know, Detective Messmore, this is what I found. So during this whole time in January 1990, every night that my father is coming home very late, the police are coming or people are asking questions and calling the house. He's meeting with his divorce lawyer a bunch in the house and the police or Dave Messmore is at the door and I can see him and it's like I know him and I'm just trying to play dumb. My father's attorney is talking to him. Oh, nobody has any comment. The doctor doesn't want to talk about this, this, that, the other, right? And I could tell that my father was becoming more and more stressed. Around January 21st, 22nd, 1990, my father tells me that he wants to do a father and son bonding trip because my mother has been gone and he knows it's really affecting me. And he wants to take me to a medical conference that he has in Florida. Now, we would go to medical conferences every year in Clearwater Beach, Florida, but they were always in the spring. They weren't in the dead of winter right after Christmas break. And they were obviously in the spring so families could have a spring break and bring their kids and it'd be a whole thing, right? And I knew right then and there that I wasn't coming back from Florida. I called Lieutenant Messmore from the school the next day and I said, this is what's going on. I said, I'm gonna drown in the Gulf of Mexico. And then it was the morning, January 24th, 1990, 33 years ago today that I woke up to two people in my bedroom and they said, pack a bag and we got 20 minutes to get out of here. And they were from Child Protective Services. I packed a bag for my sister and I wanted to take my dog. They said, we'll come back for your dog. I never saw my dog again. And as I'm coming down the stairs, the whole Mansfield Police Department crime lab is in there and they're doing their thing. There's scanners, there's men and women in white coats. It's a whole fiasco. And I know that it's all over. I don't go to school that day. I go to a home, a family friend, and I get met by a social worker who tells me who she is. And I don't really know what a social worker is, but I know it's not good. And she told me that they're looking for my father to ask him some questions and they're sort of sorting things out and all this stuff. You know, I, I know what's going on. That night, because I left all my medication and breathing stuff because I had to get out of the house, I have the worst asthma attack of my life. So bad, I thought I was gonna die. I really did. I was struggling for every breath. Somehow, by the grace of God, I stabilized myself and I was able to like sort of walk. The next morning, they took me to the hospital. So I remember they kind of ushered me. There's a, the lobby was full and I remember there was the honor box where they gave me newspapers and didn't want me to see that. So they kind of took me over this other direction around. Took me into a room, they gave me a breathing treatment, they gave me some steroid injections and I was fine. I was stabilized and once I was stabilized, um, the woman told me, she said, call your Lieutenant Messmore found your mother. And there was like this eternal pause. I had this moment right there, like just this, this little bit of optimism, like, oh, and she was like shopping in Toronto or she was you know, in the Virgin Islands, like getting a tan and having a nice time. 
And she came back. No. She said, Lieutenant Musmore found your mother. And she was dead. And the first thing out of my mouth was that bastard. That was when the real circus started because what happened is I ended up testifying at the grand jury to indict my father. Because of that, my father's family didn't want anything to do with me. And I found this out now as I get older and I've done the podcast and I've made the film and I'm still processing all of this in a lot of ways because I was abandoned by both sides of my family and then remanded to the custody of the state in the foster care system. My father's side of the family didn't want anything to do with me because of my father. Essentially, like he got caught because of you. But they're also under his spell because he's a master manipulator. And then on the flip side, my mother's side of the family wanted nothing to do with me. My godmother, my mother's sister, my Aunt Carol said, we can't take you in because you look like your father. I went to the foster care system and I was pretty much alone. I had to, over the next several months while all the evidence was being procured, while my father's in jail, find the courage within myself to do the right thing, which was I testified for two days at my father's month-long murder trial against my father. And he is still incarcerated to this day. The only person that could have made it all better was no longer on this earth. I sat there in that courtroom and I stared down that monster. And you know what? He wouldn't look back at me. And the trial was a massive fiasco. You know, he had crossed state lines. He had buried my mother's body underneath the house that he purchased in Erie, Pennsylvania. Underneath the basement floor was in an episode of Forensic Files called Foundation of Lies. But he had done the unthinkable. He murdered my mother. Also, unbeknownst to me, his girlfriend, Sherry Campbell, was pregnant. And she gave birth to my half-sister 12 days before he was arrested. It was a really high-profile case in Ohio. Uh, arguably the second largest murder trial in Ohio history. And definitely the largest criminal case in Richland County, Ohio, that they'd ever seen. I had forged a relationship with the detective and his wife. Because after the trial, I got to spend time with them. And I thought they were going to adopt me. And they wanted to. And the judge had a vendetta against the police department. And he told me in court, he's like, you don't expect me to let you go with the guy that arrested your dad, do you? I was hysterical. I was crying and... I was removed from the courtroom and I was awarded custody to strangers who I'm, I'm very grateful. My parents are, are amazing and I was adopted into an amazing family, a very large family. They had a lot of brothers and sisters, so I had a lot of cousins and they did the best they could to give me a normal life. But I stayed in that same community where all this went down. I grew up, everyone knew who I was. And it wasn't because I was this great kid and I was this amazing athlete or scholar or whatever. I was known as the kid whose father murdered his mother. Also, on the flip side, I was known as the kid who was the reason why his father got caught and put his father in prison and, and testified at court and led investigators and did all these things and really went above and beyond to get justice for his mother while putting his life on the line. So there's that. But I wanted to get out. I love where I'm from. I love my community. And they were very supportive at this time. I mean, even people that I didn't, you know, people I didn't even see because I was essentially isolated as a witness. People supported me in the community. They felt bad. But... I was always going to grow up with, like, that's the boil kid. There he is. That's the boil. So I lived under that shadow of this horrific event. And I said to myself, I don't want that. I want to go to a place where no one knows who I am, where I can 
Literally, when I know that somebody likes me, they like me for me. They like me for Collier, not for the kid whose mom was murdered by his dad, not for this kid who has this whole history, not for who he's famous or whatever the hell it is, right? I wanted to be known for who I was as a person. And that became my lifelong struggle, my lifelong mission. I moved out to Los Angeles with less than two grand in my pocket and just a dream of being by that ocean those first memories as a child. And I live like a mile from there now. And it was a big part of me to just decide to try to walk a path to find my own identity out of such horrific tragedy. Also at the same time, struggling with the demons of the fact that your father murdered your mother. I have underneath my desk like 30 years of letters from my father, which I read on my podcast, some of them, to show manipulation and gaslighting and narcissism and like how he's manipulating me as a child because he would try for appeal after appeal and say, you know, a lot of people tell me when you were testifying, you were so good on the witness stand. It's like you were coached. It's like they told you what to say. It's like this. And I said two things. Do you understand how hard it would be for a 12-year-old child who's facing down a monster of a father to remember some sort of rehearsed script? First of all, like I said, it's utterly fanciful. But second of all, the reason why it looks so convincing is because the truth is the easiest thing to remember. It's so pure that it flows. That's the thing is, is as I think about, look, I moved out to LA. I've said, I'm either going to be a rock star and become famous and tell my story and change the world and help people, or I'm going to become a filmmaker, tell my story, change the world, help people, right? And honor my mother's legacy. And I became a filmmaker and I made a film. It came out at the end of 2018 and then came out worldwide in 2020 called A Murder in Mansfield. And the film is not a true crime film. It is a film that looks at the consequences of violence because that's what I was passionate about the whole time growing up is that we see cases, we see these crimes, and we don't look past what happened. And then we say next, and we don't look at how it affects communities, families, the friends, the ancillary victims, right? The son of the victim the son of the perpetrator, the families, the, the friends, the, my half-sister, my adopted sister, like how all these things interweave, right? And it's a very complex web that is woven when violence like this occurs. My half-sister lives in North Carolina or South Carolina. I haven't seen her in seven years almost. She was going to be a part of the film and she decided not to at the last minute. And that's the last time I saw her. Great relationship before that. And then my uh, adopted sister, I have not seen since January 1991. But she was in the same community that I grew up in. She was adopted by the foster parents that I was living with before I was finally adopted by another family. And they wanted custody of her all along and they never allowed me to see her after that. They said that they didn't want us to have contact because it was too traumatic for her. There's a lot of things that were allowed. There's a lot of things that happened. Money missing, things missing, heirlooms missing. I mean, you name it, man. The collateral damage is mind-boggling. The collateral damage is mind-boggling. And we don't really examine that. It's why I do my podcast, Moving Past Murder. I'm very passionate. I work with you know other survivors of, of violent crime and we share our stories because I want to give people hope that what happened to you and what you go through, these traumatic, these horrific events that you wouldn't wish on anyone, that isn't what defines you. What defines you is what you do with them. That's what real resilience is, is you take these challenging moments and you say, what am I going to do with this now? What now? And that ultimately for me was to share the story with the world. You have two options in these situations. You can bottle it all up 
put a lid on it, say, F- the world, everybody owes me everything, and I'm angry, and I hate everyone, I hate life. And you're going to take it out on yourself, you'll, you'll self-harm, you'll harm others, you'll carry on the legacy of violence or abuse on other people, on yourself, sit underneath a bridge in East LA with a needle in your arm or whatever, or you say to yourself, I'm going to do something positive for myself, for who I am, for my mother, and show people that there is a better way, that there is hope, that you can make it through these circumstances. And look, you get your ass kicked, beaten, you're going to have a few broken bones, scars, bruises, but you're going to make it and you're going to be okay. So that's a roundabout way of me telling you who I am. I'm Collier Landry.